Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah during rather tumultuous times. Judah found itself in the crosshairs of a military superpower of that day, the brutal Assyrians. Who would deliver them from this threat? Who could they turn to to trust? Furthermore, even after the Assyrian military superpower had passed, Isaiah prophesied that God's people would eventually also be taken into exile by Babylon. Exile? This would effectively be the death of the nation, the temple, for example, the thing that made them unique among all peoples. It would be destroyed. They'd be removed from their land, losing their geographic identity. They would be made slaves in a foreign land. It is essentially the undoing of the exodus, going back into a new sort of Egypt in bondage and undoing God's promises. What hope was there in light of all this? Would this just be the end? And we face the same sort of questions even today, that in the midst of a world wreaked with sin and suffering, who can we turn to to deliver us? Who can we place our trust in? And is there any hope beyond the suffering? In our passage today, Isaiah 25, God answers that question for us. There is hope beyond exile. There is someone whom we can trust because one day God will come judging the nations and restoring his people. Our passage today is here to tell us this, that God is to be praised because in Christ he richly satisfies and saves us from our enemies. Nothing short of death itself. Praise God who through Christ richly satisfies and saves his people from their enemies. Nothing short of death itself. Our passage as Shar read for us is it's in this sort of sandwich structure you may have noticed. You may think of it kind of like an Oreo, right? With the, the cookies on the outside and that center cream filling. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at those outside cookies and then we're going to move to the cream filling on the inside. So first of all, we see in verses 2 and 3 that God is going to destroy this city of man. And we might struggle with how that's good news, why that's reason to praise God, as he says, because God's going to destroy the city. How is destroying and judging the nation something good? But, but here... Destroying these nations, is, it means deliverance for God's vulnerable people. It means delivering them from, from, from hostile, oppressive forces. And we see that in verses 4 and 5 as we read. Uh, we, we sometimes think of the, we use this language that I find helpful where we talk about salvation as God saving us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and then ultimately the presence of sin. So Christ saves us from the penalty of sin at the cross, and he's saving us from the power of sin as the ongoing effects of sin are removed from our life, and ultimately we'll be saved from the presence of sin when he comes again. But, but one commentator uh, named Paul House, he also adds, we should also think of salvation as being rescued from practitioners of sin. That is, those who do evil in this world and bring about sinful effects of sin and oppress, oppression on God's people. That we're also going to be saved from the practitioners 
of sin. We see that in verse 4 and 5, as I said, where, where we see God delivering his people from ruthless nations, and in so doing, he serves as a refuge for his people. We get this imagery of, a, of how God is a shelter from the storm of these ruthless foes. Or this, this imagery of God subduing the enemy the same way that, that shade subdues an oppressive heat. I don't know if you've, if, well, I'm sure you probably have, like the Wisconsin summer with the, with the great humidity. I remember one time when I was growing up, I was probably like upper elementary school and we were playing soccer uh, in a tournament where my team, like for whatever reason, it was rec league. So like these kids didn't show up. We only had, we couldn't even full, uh, man a full team. We only had like 10 or 9 players. You're supposed to have 11 on the field plus subs. And it was over 100 degrees. It was, it was miserable. We ended up winning the game. But it was miserable. And God is like the one who rescues us from that oppressive heat, bringing us relief like a shade for his people. And then finally, the other end of the cookie, verses 9 through 12, we get Moab here, who seems to be representative of, of the nations at large. And Moab is humiliated in its pride, being brought down by God. This imagery of, of like straw that is trampled down in a pile of manure, and Moab is trying to swim its way out, but it can't. It's nasty. And so that's the picture on the outside, God judging the nations that oppress his people. And now we come to the center, verses 6 through 8. This is sort of the hot spot of the passage. And this section here, 6 through 8, you'll notice it's, it's organized by three statements where God is going to do something. And God will do this. God will do this. God will do this. The first one comes in verse 6. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will what? He will first make a feast for all peoples. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well refined. So what does this imagery convey, this idea of a feast? What are we meant to take away from that? Five things that I thought of as I was reflecting on this. The first is there's a privilege of being one who's invited to the feast. The fact that we as his people are invited communicates the privilege we have. You think about if you were invited to go to a dinner, um, let's say you went to a dinner with me, that might be cool, but let's say you got, to, you got to be invited to go to the dinner with the president, okay? I don't really compare to that. You would feel incredibly privileged if you got invited to the White House to have a dinner with the president. Or let's say you go to a Bucks game, and after the Bucks game, Giannis is like, hey man, I really, really got to make sure, go find Isaiah Dino and make sure we're going uh, to have dinner after this game, okay? Make sure you find that guy up in the stands so we can go have dinner. You'd feel incredibly privileged. Second of all, I think this meal shows the lavishness of the salvation that God is going to provide us on that day. There's, it talks about, the passage says, this rich food and this, this well-aged wine that communicates that God is generously lavishing on us the rich blessings of his salvation. Food is just an incredible way to bless other people. I love good food. I, I love, if you have me over and make a homemade meal, that's like you put a lot of work into it. Um, I remember this one time, Wislet, when we had when we had, uh, maybe it was Abel or Evangeline, and you get the food train, and Wislet made us curry, and it was awesome. And I'm like, we need to have more babies just so we can have curry again. <laughs> it was amazing, okay? 
Or if someone takes you out to eat, it's an incredible way to bless someone. And that's the idea here that God is blessing us with salvation in the form of this, this imagery of this feast. Thirdly, it communicates God's graciousness, his generosity, gifting his people to a great feast. You notice it's not us who come and provide the food. This isn't a potluck, okay? We have nothing to offer here. Rather, God is the one providing the food. He is supplying our need. Fourthly, it communicates our satisfaction, that God is richly supplying our need for salvation. We are full. We're satiated. And fifthly, it communicates celebration. Meals are a way that we celebrate. Sometimes we'll talk about going out to celebrate. We went out for his birthday. But what is being celebrated here? Why the celebration here? Well, because at this feast, death itself is on the menu. Notice what God eats at this meal. He devours death itself. And so we see, secondly, not only will God make a feast for his people, but he's going to swallow up death at that feast. Verse 7, And he, God, will swallow up on this mountain, Mount Zion, that is, the covering that is cast over all people, the the death veil that one would wear at a funeral, for example, the veil that is spread over all the nations. What is he going to swallow up then? He's going to swallow up death forever. And when we go over one chapter, if you look at Isaiah 26, verse 19, in the immediate context here, it explains for us and makes even more explicit what it means here for death to be swallowed up. Verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Death is going to be swallowed up, meaning that people will actually be physically raised from the dead. And how is this eventually accomplished? When when is this fulfilled? What happens through the death and resurrection of Christ? You see, Christ represented represented us on the cross. He stood in for for us. He, He substituted himself for us, taking our place. He died the death that we deserved. We deserve death for our sins, but Christ pays for our sins through his death in our place. The Apostle Paul, he he likes to explain this in terms of Jesus being like a new sort of Adam. And so Adam, if you're familiar, he's the, the first human being and he sinned. And as a result of his sin, he made all of us sinners. He made all of us guilty, condemned before God, deserving God's punishment. But Christ, on the other hand, is a new Adam figure. And so by going to the cross, Jesus makes all of his people forgiven and righteous in God's sight, reversing what Adam did. So Adam's actions make us guilty before God. Jesus' actions make us righteous before God. But not only so, not only does Adam, so, so on the one hand, Adam's sin also not only brought, brought condemnation, but it also brought death upon us. His sin introduced death into the world as well. And so now all of us not only are condemned before God, but we also experience death. But here too, the apostle says that Paul is again serving as a replacement Adam figure. Just as Christ substituted himself for us by taking our punishment, so Christ also substitutes himself by bearing death itself 
for us. As Christ takes our punishment on the cross and he pays it in full, so Christ experiences death on the cross for us and he pays that in full as well. So we read of this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, for instance, where Paul says, For as by a man came death, that's Adam, so by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, physically raised from the dead. As Athanasius says in his book on the Incarnation, Christ, the word of God, put on a body so that in the body he might go find death and blot it out. And Christ's resurrection then is the signal that death has in fact been defeated. That death does not have a hold on Christ. That through his death, Christ swallowed up death. That in Christ's death, death itself gets devoured. And his resurrection is the proof of it. Christ's resurrection then isn't a mere reversal of death, as if he was simply resuscitated. That's not what we're saying. No, his resurrection is his actual passing through death and coming out on the other side, forever free from all of its claims. He is now the way humanity was always meant to be, entirely free from sin and death and all of its corrupting effects. But remember, his defeat of death was for us. And so just as he stood in our place and he defeated sin for us, so he stood in our place and he has defeated death for us. And so one day, Jesus' victory over death will be our victory over death. We too will experience victory over death. That just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, never to die again, receiving a glorified body free from sin and all of death's corrupting effects, so too we will be raised from the dead into glory. In other words, the ultimate hope of the Christian is not to die and go to heaven. Our ultimate hope is when Christ comes again and physically raises us from the dead. And this is why we confess then in the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in the resurrection of the body. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Christ comes again, he will raise all those that belong to Jesus. Verses 52 and 54. Some familiar words. Paul says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last judgment, or at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. We will be raised imperishable for this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality, an immortal body. When the perishable puts on the imperishable at that moment, at the last trumpet, when Christ comes again and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and he quotes Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up in victory. When Christ comes again, Isaiah 25 will ring true. And so finally, we have seen God who will, who will make a feast. He will swallow up death. Thirdly, in verse 8, he will wipe away every tear. By destroying death, every tear will now be wiped away. 
the greatest epitome of our sadness, death, is done away with. Verse 8, And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It is sure. This is the Lord who planned forms of old, faithful and sure. Verse 1, He has spoken. Surely it will come to pass. In the return of the kings at the end of the book, this is a third movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Samwise Gamgee, the, the hobbit that accompanies Frodo, all of a sudden he wakes up out of his, out of his, his, uh, his, his slumber, his days. He sees Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to become untrue? And that is certainly what awaits us, believer. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, God will wipe away all the tears from our faces, the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. And these things, as we saw, they will finally come to pass at Christ's second coming. When Jesus returns to judge all hostile nations and restore his people, even delivering us from the greatest enemy, the last enemy, as Paul says, death itself. In the book of Revelation, for example, we get something of the New Testament counterpart to this vision in Isaiah 25. We've gone through Revelation not too long ago, so maybe you'll remember. Revelation 17 through 22 in particular, those last chapters, they give us a series of visions about what will happen at Christ's second coming. And I want you to notice the similarities to Isaiah 25. First, in Revelation 17 through 18, this is the vision of the destruction of the great harlot, Babylon, the great city. And so we get the destruction of the city, just as our passage says. The city of man is destroyed. As 17, 18 describes the great harlot, it's the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Sinful humanity is destroyed. And then in 19, 6 through 10, the passage that immediately follows this, We have a beautiful marriage supper, a feast that Christ lays out for his people. And then that brings us into the vision of the new creation. And so in the new creation vision in chapter 21, verse 4, as the new creation is ushered in, we read of this in verse 3 and 4, that is, that God himself will be with them as their God. Just as this passage says, O Lord, you are my God. Behold, this is our God. God himself will be our God, and he will, exact same language, wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why? Because death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things, the things of the first creation, now we're into a new creation, but those former things, they have all passed away. And so we praise God, who through Christ richly satisfies us and saves us from all of our enemies, even death itself, nothing short of death itself. And so how do we respond to this message? How do we respond to this word of God from Isaiah through Isaiah, his prophet? Well, first of all, our first move should be to trust in this God, to place our trust in this God. We see that in verse 9 where it says, this is our God in whom we have waited We've waited, and the word waited there, it does have this idea of patience. There's a longing, there's an anticipating, but it also conveys this idea of trust. The word actually has that idea of trust built into it. 
that you're, you're not just waiting, like, in, like just being passive, but you're waiting by trusting. You're looking forward to. And so we trust in God alone as the one who can save. And so if you're here today and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ for salvation as the remedy to your own personal sin, as the remedy to your own eventual death, as the remedy to, to, the, to the problems of this world, to the evil that needs to eventually be removed from this world, the question is, who are you trusting in then? So in this context here, when Isaiah is writing, this audience is, is, is facing the threat of Assyria, remember? And so Judah, as, as if we were to look at the whole book, we'd see that Judah was tempted. King Ahaz, who was, who was leading them at that time, they were tempted to trust in other things. They're about to be attacked by, by a, a great military. Maybe they should turn to another country that can help them. Maybe they should turn to Egypt to look to them for aid, to put their trust in Egypt. And what does God say to them? He rebukes them. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. Woe to those who trust in chariots because they are many and, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they don't look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. The Egyptians are man, they're not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And God would say the same thing to you if you were putting your trust in anything outside of him, outside of the one that he has appointed for us, for salvation, Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're like Moab here, the one who in your pride, you're, you're trusting in yourself and the works of your hands. And God says you will be brought low. What hope do you have in the face of death? Every single one of us, unless Christ returns beforehand, every single one of us will face death someday. That is your future. That's not, an ex that's not just something all your relatives go through and all your friends go through. That's something that you will go through. Leo Tolstoy said this. He said, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this. What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Sounds very much like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? All is vanity and vanity from, a, from an under-the-sun perspective. Everything is passing, and ultimately, no matter what you build in this life, eventually death comes along and declares it vanity. It's all going to end at some point. If the resurrection isn't true, if you don't have the hope of eternal life, and so this passage would tell us, in contrast to trusting in God and having salvation there, having reason for life even there, if we don't trust God, it is to reject God. It's to place ourselves squarely as one of his enemies, this passage says. One from among the nations who exist in rebellion against God and who will ultimately bring down judgment upon themselves. But for those who are his people, for those who do place their faith in him, even today placing your faith in Christ, you have reason to rejoice. And this passage calls you to rejoice and to praise God for this salvation. Notice how the passage in verse 1 
uh, the, the first sort of outer cookie, it begins with, O Lord, Yahweh that is, my God. Singular, my God. But then by the, by the, 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 the sort of the outside portion, when we get to verse 9, that closing section, it's behold, this is our God, plural. This is the Lord, Yahweh, our God, plural. And so by the end of the passage, God through Isaiah here is calling us in to participate in the praise. It's like a choir director. He starts his solo and by the end, all the background singers, that's us, we get to join in. And the tone here is triumphant. It's even emotional. At the nation's judgment, we feel this huge sense of relief. If we were to enter in, put ourselves into the context here, when those nations are judged, oh, that's a huge sense of relief. This, this weight is lifted off the audience's shoulders. The, the cause for their anxiety, for their distress, their fear, their oppression, it's gone. At the moment of salvation for God's people, I, I imagine these words being even spoken with shouting and crying for joy. Look at verse 9. It's going to be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is, this is Yahweh, the one whom we've waited for. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is, this is the cry of a people who have deeply felt their desperation. They've gone through plunder. They've gone through exile. They've gone through suffering. And now the salvation has finally come and things have been made right. It's this, it's this sense of relief of it's finally here. Like in the movies when someone's gone through a, a terrible journey, maybe out at sea, and they finally reach land. And, and what do they do? The journeymen, they come to the land and they start kissing the ground. They're so relieved. They've escaped the arduous journey. That's the idea here, that we've been waiting so, so long for this God, and it's finally here. And maybe you're here today and, and, and you feel this. You can resonate with that. We long for that moment. It's finally here. We're acutely aware of the difficulty and pain that characterizes this life. On the other hand, there may be some of us here who are anesthetized and, and numbed by comfort, or maybe our affluence, or we've grown accustomed to the sinfulness of this world, and so we don't, we don't feel that desperation. Things feel fine. And we need to be stirred up again to long for Christ's coming to set things right. So this passage... It tells us to praise God. And, and in one sense, we could say that's a sufficient application in and of itself. I mean, it's the whole reason we were created, right? It doesn't get any more fundamental to, than that. As the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This would be a sufficient stopping point on its own. And yet, I also think we can ask, well, what does it look like to be the sort of people that praises this God who satisfies and saves us from our enemies. If we are to praise God, as this passage says, what would it look like to be someone who worships a God like that, who sets their hope in a God like that, saving us from our enemies, nothing short of death itself? And I think the answer is this. We would be a people who would be characterized by hope-fueled, confidently trusting Patient endurance. Let me say that again. Each of those words I picked carefully. Hope fueled, fueled by hope. Confidently trusting. We're waiting with confidence. We're trusting in God. Patient. 
the waiting endurance. We, we, we go through whatever. We hold on to that hope. I think this is what it would look like to be someone who praises because they've set their hope on this sort of God and this sort of future. That, that this is a sort of person that can endure anything because of a confidence of where things are headed. Remember, the original audience of this passage was going to experience having their cities destroyed, being plundered, their wives and daughters abused with things I won't name, fathers and sons and brothers killed, the survivors would be taken captive and hauled off to foreign lands to be treated as slaves. It's, it's pretty hard to think of darker circumstances than this. And yet it's into this situation that God speaks the hope of this passage. How much more so for any darkness that we also face. Uh, popular retired pastor Tim Keller, you probably, you probably know him, most of you. He was recently interviewed by the New York Times. And in it, he talked about the moment when he received his stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis. The doctor looked at us and said, I want you to realize that it, when, when it comes to pancreatic cancer, you're going to die from this. My wife Kathy and I spent much time in tears and disbelief. But then the interviewer of the New York Times asks him this, where do you find your hope? Where do you find your hope? And Keller replies, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately God is going to put everything right. Suffering is going to go away. Evil is going to go away. Death is going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Pancreatic cancer is going to go away. And these last few months, as, as we've gotten in touch with these great parts of our faith, Kathy and I, that's his wife, we would both say that we've never been happier in our lives, even though I'm living under the shadow of cancer. I do think that the great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole lot more because I look at Easter and I say, because of this, I can face anything. In the past, I thought of Easter as kind of an optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see Easter as a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear, any anger and despair. I see it as more powerful than ever before. As Paul says in Romans 8, 17, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It's not, don't even compare the two. It's a joke. You see, if, if we know that this is our future, that God will undo all the enemies of this life, hardship, mistreatment, sickness, even death, then we can endure anything. We can endure that medical diagnosis. We can endure that difficult marriage, that difficult job, barrenness, unwanted singleness, being misunderstood and maligned by, for our Christian beliefs. You name it. Why? Because one day God will, as verse 8 says, he will, he will wipe our tears from our eyes and he will remove the reproach from his people. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, this is what mortals misunderstand. Mortals like us, we misunderstand this. They say of some temporal suffering, that is momentary suffering, 
No future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Or as New Testament scholar Esau Macaulay makes this helpful observation, he says, you see, when, when Paul wanted to encourage Christians in the midst of their suffering, he didn't tell them, your breakthrough is right around the corner. Right? That's the kind of thing we hear today. Your breakthrough is right around the corner. Just endure it. It's going to get better. No, he helped them make sense of their suffering by pointing to the second coming of Christ. Because sometimes, maybe even most times, the breakthrough never comes. Christians get sick and they die. They lose their jobs. They don't necessarily get a better one. But the future resurrection and restoration of all things remains an unshakable hope to fuel our endurance. And in addition, even beyond endurance and hope, we can also live lives that are wholeheartedly for God because of this. Because the present conditions of this life are not ultimate. In fact, these are just fleeting. We don't have to live for our bank accounts, in other words. We don't have to live for an awesome retirement or for our comfort. We don't have to live for our kids getting the best educations or for having the acceptance of our peers. Rather, we can, as Jesus says, we can lose our lives for Christ because we know in the end that in so doing, by losing our lives, we actually find them. Matthew 10. In fact, living for this life, that's a waste. That's foolish. Because this life is fleeting. But because of the resurrection, that means living for Christ is more than worth it. It's the only sensible thing. At the end of Paul's long discourse on the future resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, the one we mentioned before, he says this. This is how he concludes. After he says, death is swallowed up. Oh, death, where is your sting? He says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, this is, this is the takeaway. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection is true, your labor, everything we do as a church, ministering, all the evangelism we do, the living our lives for Christ wholeheartedly, it's not in vain. That's the same word that the Greek used for, for Ecclesiastes, the vanity, vanity. Leo Tolstoy's question is now answered. The resurrection makes living sold out for Christ, no matter what we have to sacrifice in the process, worth it. The resurrection gives our life lived for Christ eternal value. Only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so let me leave you with two reflection questions. We'll probably, you can probably spend time asking these questions more in your small groups this week. But number one, is I want you to ask yourself, how would you live your life differently if this promise wasn't true? If you didn't have this hope, how would you live your life differently? Would your life look any different? Because your life should look different. It should look drastically different if this wasn't true. In other words, your life should look drastically different now because it's true. If your life wouldn't look any different, that means your life now is not being governed by this truth. And I don't just mean your life looks a little bit different, like, oh, I wouldn't attend church on Sundays. 
I mean fundamentally. This is a fundamental reality to our existence. This is a, the resurrection of Christ is a defining reality for the history of the world and for your life. If your life would not look fundamentally different, something is off. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. It's the calculus for knowing what it looks like to live a life that actually matters. Second of all, why do we fail to live in the good of a message, of, of this passage's message, of a message like this? Why do we fail to live in the good of it? It's good for us. It's good. We should want to live in, in light of this, but why do we struggle with that? Why do we fail? And I think, first of all, it's, it, it can be easy when difficulty or hardship steps into our focus. We get a sort of tunnel vision. It, it, it's hard to look through that hardship to the hope that lies behind it. The hardship sort of consumes all of our attention and all of our focus. And then sometimes it's the opposite reality. As we said, maybe we're, we grow comfortable. We've, we've sort of been anesthetized by our comforts and by our affluence. And that's why we need the Lord's Supper every week. Because the Lord's Supper commemorates this victory already won. The bread and the wine signify Christ's saving death in our place. But not only so, not only does the Lord's Supper look back to the victory won, guaranteed, the things that we're talking about this morning and in the future are guaranteed by what Jesus has already done. He has done those things in principle in his own death and resurrection. But not only so does it look to the past, it also anticipates the future, that feast when God's victory will be consummated. Uh, appetizers, if you look up the definition of an appetizer, it is a small dish before a meal meant to stimulate one's appetite. It's meant to get you ready for the main course, right? Remember this, one of the best appetizers I ever had, Anna and I went out for Thai food, and there's these little dumplings that you can order. Um, I think we saw like a Pixar movie that had dumplings, and we both got really hungry after watching it. And then we went out for Thai food and got these little dumplings that had this really kind of like zesty, spicy sauce on them. They were awesome, okay? It's supposed to get your appetite all set for the main entree. And I want you to think of the Lord's Supper as something of an appetizer. It's like an appetizer getting our taste buds ready, reorienting us, keeping our eyes of faith locked in on that hope for that future meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb.